Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 on Noah, by faith Noah, this is our verse for today. But we'll start at verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 7 of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will grant to us the kind of faith that Noah had. May we also heed your warning and may we also in reverence do your will. Teach us, Lord, faith and obedience based on things that you say and not what the world says, based on things that you say of the unseen world and not based on the things of the physical and visible world. Teach us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Now that we have come to Noah, we have to understand in reference to Noah that he becomes a very important figure throughout the Bible. He is mentioned more often than people realize. Yes, he is mentioned in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 6 to 9, or actually from the end of chapter 5 as a descendant of Adam from that time onward. But what happened to Noah is very much a paradigm and very much an example for every generation. Noah, yes, was privileged in very certain ways, but Noah is an example for all of us. For example, in his time, Noah was basically the only one in his generation. He and then his family, the eight of them went into the ark. All the rest of the world, and statistics, uh, according to scholars, the, the statistics of the time, uh, the calculation from the time of Adam to Noah, the number of years that transpired from the creation of the world to the flood over 1,600 years of time, there were billions of people on the earth. Billions of people. And yet it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Nobody else did. Noah did, but nobody else. So he is an example, for example, of a remnant in a generation or in every generation that there are many, many people who live, many, many people who claim the faith, but there are just very few who are true believers. This is just one of the major ways in which Noah is an example for all of us. Now, when we think of Noah, you know, we also have to understand in the history of interpretation, until the modern era, in the history of Christian interpretation for the last 2,000 years, when commentators, theologians and pastors and scholars have commented on the Bible, for the most part, the vast majority of them, they believed in the text of the scriptures. 
They believed in the historicity of the Bible. They believed that they were historical events, real life events, that Noah existed in time and space in history. But in our generation, and because of the last two to three hundred years of liberal scholarship on the Bible, many people within the church claiming to be Christians but really do not believe the Bible, and their goal in life is to make us not believe the Bible. They actually look at themselves in that role. And so they say, Noah is ridiculous. They mock at Noah. They scoff at the idea that Noah actually existed and that the whole world was destroyed in a worldwide flood. They ridicule it. They demean it. They mock it. They have no end in speaking against Noah, the things that happened in history, and also the things that they prefigure about the future, about the future, day of judgment. In fact, in the 1800s, the impetus for the theory of evolution among Darwin and others in that period, in the mid-1800s, the impetus was a denial of Noah and the worldwide flood. They mocked it. They said, this is absolutely absurd to think that there is a God who is so holy and man that is so wicked that this God would condemn the whole world and then save Noah and a few others and some animals on the ark for over a year in a worldwide flood. They actually ridiculed it and then ridiculed the thought that that is a picture or an illustration, an example of the day of judgment. That there are many people who live in the world throughout history, but just a few who are saved out of those many, many people throughout history. They mocked and ridiculed that, and they, on that basis, said, if the flood is not true, then creation's not true either. It started with the flood, and then it went to creationism, and that's how they uh, invented or scientifically tried to give an academic and intellectual spin to a denial of the creation of the world in the way that Genesis describes. So, when we study Noah, we have to not just look at him as uh, a fairy tale or a myth or a good story to teach children in a Sunday school classroom setting. This is not what we're doing with Noah. Noah is a historical figure. He was a man of faith. He believed in Christ. He prepared himself for the day of judgment. And that we ought to do the same. So now let's see on the first, um, first point about Noah that Noah was indeed, biblically speaking, a historical person. He was a real person in time and space in our world. He was a real person. How do we know this? Let's begin our journey in the book of Genesis. Turn with me, please, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. This is a genealogy that goes from Adam... Adam to Noah. Genesis chapter 5 goes from Adam to Noah. Ten generations of patriarchs who had sons and daughters, except Noah. He had just the three sons. And notice in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then Adam had a son named Seth and so forth. And we go from Adam and Seth and all the others 
down to the end, and notice it says in chapter 5, verse 32, and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. See here, this genealogy is a historical account outlining for us the main descendants of Adam from Adam to Noah. There he is a real person. Now turn to the book of First Chronicles. Turn to the book of First Chronicles. The book of Chronicles, as its name indicates, is a record. It's a chronicle or a record, a history book. That's its nature. That is what it is. If you're finding your way, Samuel Kings and Chronicles. Samuel Kings and then the book of First Chronicles. Open up to chapter 1 and you'll see he starts with a genealogy and he goes with this genealogy for about nine chapters. And then he describes historical incidents. But first, he traces the lineage of not only mankind, but specifically the people of Israel. First Chronicles chapter 1. Notice how he starts. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. He is saying it as matter of fact, assuming that we understand Genesis chapter 5 and also Genesis 11 in a moment. He's going to assume that we understand that that is already there and he's tracing Noah here as a historical person, a descendant of Adam. And then from Noah, notice we go in verse 24. Verse 24, 1 Chronicles 1, 24. Remember, Noah had his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And verse 24, Shem, that one son, his descendants were Arpachshad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Sarub, Nahor, Terah, er Abram, that is Abraham. So we go from Noah through Shem to Abraham, right there. And then from Abraham, we have to go to Isaac and Jacob, right? Or Israel. Jacob's second name is Israel. First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 1. First Chronicles 2, verse 1. These are the sons of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These are the 12 sons of Jacob, or Israel. But then among those 12 sons... Who is there? Judah. Judah is important because Judah is the ancestor of David. And David's genealogy, we can see partly in chapter uh, 2, and then it finishes up in chapter 3. David's genealogy is right there. So he is considered <laughs> historical and an ancestor of even King David. Now, how important is this? We have, this is so important that it's connected to Christ. Turn now to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. In the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse 23. 3.23. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And it continues going backwards from Jesus... Uh, adopted father or legal father, Joseph, back, notice, to verse 31, where it mentions David. 
And then from David, it goes to Judah in verse 33. You see, he's called the son of Judah. And 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. And then we continue, go all the way to verse 38, the last verse. Luke 3, 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Noah's existence is so important in the Bible that he is an ancestor of Christ. So this genealogy puts it all out there. It lays it all out there. If we're going to deny the historicity of Noah, we have to deny the historicity of Abraham and David and even Jesus. The way the Bible looks at it, they are all historical. So we have to believe that Noah was historical. Furthermore, let's look at a, a couple of verses in the prophets which also mention Noah, which also mention him. The first one is Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. 54 and verse 9. In this, in this oracle here, God is promising them restoration and peace and salvation, redemption. And so in this context, he mentions Noah. Isaiah 54, verse 9. 54, 9. He says, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. When God swore to Noah that he would not destroy the, the earth again with a, a flood of water, when God promised that, that was a promise that was a hopeful promise. This was a good thing, and it was a reminder to the people that God would fulfill his promises and do good to his people. That was the spiritual application of this promise that God would not destroy the world again with the flood. And that's what he's saying here. So if the promises of God are to be applied to us and they are real, they're true, then they are compared to Noah. Just as God promised these things to Noah and his generation, he's promising them to us. That he'll protect us. He won't be angry with us because he's forgiven us in Christ. He won't destroy us. Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14 is our second example here in the prophets. Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel's time, the people of Judah, the nation, they were very wicked and, the, and they were being destroyed by foreigners, the Babylonians. And the people were so wicked that he, Ezekiel compares the wickedness of the people to others who were righteous. And notice who he describes as being righteous. Ezekiel 14, we'll begin at verse 12. Ezekiel 14, 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. You see what God says? When people have become so perverse and corrupt in their wickedness, and it's time to destroy them, then 
even if they had this one man like Noah or Daniel or Job, all of these were righteous men in the Old Testament, Daniel the prophet, Job from the book of Job, and Noah, the, um, who is our topic today. These were righteous men, and they would be spared judgment, but not everybody else. And why does Ezekiel use this example? Because he believes that Noah was a real person, just like he believes Daniel the prophet was a real person, and he believes that Job was a real person. This is why he mentions them, which he does again, by the way, in verse 20. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So we see that throughout the Old Testament, the people believed in the real presence or the historicity of Noah. He was one of their ancestors and one of the ancestors of the whole human race, right? Because after everyone was destroyed, it's Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, let's return to Hebrews chapter 11. Now that we have established the reality of Noah, let's see what God says about him and his faith. Hebrews 11, 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. In the first case, in this first part of the verse, it says that by faith Noah, even though there is no explicit verse in the Old Testament that actually says Noah believed or Noah had faith, it's evident from the way he lived his life that that's the way he was. That's why he's telling us, in case it's unclear to us, he's saying by faith Noah. Noah was not dependent on his own righteousness, he had faith in Christ. This is why he had the favor of God. Noah believed in Christ. He had faith as a gift. Just as repentance and faith are both gifts, Noah had faith, not because he was a great man in and of himself, because everybody was wicked in their natural condition. But Noah was a man of faith, and because he was a man of faith, what does faith do? What does faith do? Firstly, notice in 7, being warned by God. He was warned by God. He had faith, and when he heard the warning, remember the warning that he's about to destroy all flesh, but he's going to preserve Noah and his family and some animals on the ark, a big ship. He's going to spare them all for over a year. They're going to be in there, and everything else will be destroyed. This is a warning, and that warning of the physical judgment to come was a picture of the spiritual judgment to come on the day of judgment. Noah here was warned. He was warned, so he, in faith, heard a warning and acted accordingly. He acted accordingly about things not yet seen. This is what true faith does. When true faith hears a warning from God, it will believe whatever God says. True faith responds to warnings. What, what usually happens when we hear warnings, if we're not practicing faith? What usually happens when we hear a warning? We, we will be just like liberal commentators on the Bible. 
We'll laugh at it. We'll say, no, you're exaggerating it. You don't know what you're talking about. No, you're crazy. You don't know anything. I know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. This is what people do with warnings. They say, that's not true. It's not going to happen that way. There's no day of judgment. You're, you're, you're crazy to think that there's a day of judgment. You don't know. How can you know? Nobody knows. This is how people respond when they hear warnings. They don't think that the warning or the danger that is imminent is a real danger. So they have to dismiss the real danger and the way that they soothe their conscience about warnings that they hear is to dismiss the real danger and then ridicule the messenger so that they feel good. Because if they took it seriously, it would prick their conscience. It would bother them and they couldn't sleep. They couldn't sleep until they resolved it. But they have to sleep. Everyone needs to sleep. So how do people, wicked people sleep? When they hear a warning, they'll dismiss it, they'll ridicule it, they'll forget it, they'll say, no, it's not worth paying attention to. They'll do something like that so that they can sleep. But not Noah. Noah was a man of faith, and because he was a man of faith, he heeded the warning. By the way, this is not the first time our apostle has ta taught us about warnings throughout this letter. Almost every chapter, chapter 2, uh, chapter 3 and 4, the whole of chapters 3 and 4, practically, chapter 6, the famous falling away passage or passage on apostasy is right there. Chapter 10, uh, at the end of the chapter, he has a warning right here. He's presenting this warning. In chapter 12, 1225, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Hebrews 12, 25. The whole letter is full of warnings to people that they might heed what God says. Further, it says in verse 7, it was a warning about things not yet seen. Not yet seen. This is where we get tripped up. This is when it becomes difficult. Those who lack faith, true faith, because they don't see it, they dismiss it. Because they don't see it, they ridicule it. Because they don't see it, they think the proclaimer of those unseen things is a madman, a crazy man, who doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't see it, and because I don't see it, it must not be true. If I see it, then I'll believe it, they say. Really, actually, it's an excuse. Because they believe in things that they have never seen. Isn't that the case? Unbelieving people, they believe in all kinds of things that they have never literally seen with their own eyes. They believe in the existence of many countries where they have never been. They believe in the existence of the North Pole. They believe in the existence of Jupiter. They believe in the existence of all kinds of... They believe in the existence of their own brains even though they've never seen their own brains with their physical eyes. Right? So, but the excuse is because I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it. But not true faith. True faith here believes in the warning even though they don't see it yet. Even though they don't see it. Why? Because it came from the mouth of God by means of the messenger of God. That's why they believe it. Now we say, 
not yet seen. So this is what he's been saying throughout. He says it in verse one, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Things not seen. And verse three, he made what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. As well in verse 20, um, verse 27, that Moses was seeing him who is unseen. He was as seeing him who is unseen. And even the whole history of the patriarchs, verse 13 says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. How did they see them and welcome them from a distance? Abraham, did Abraham literally see his numerous millions of descendants? No, but he saw them by faith. He saw the unseen reality of these things by faith. He saw that from a distance, speaking of the things that would happen in his life. And the same with us. Is Christ going to return? We have never seen Christ, yet we believe in him, which is good according to 1 Peter 1. Yet even though you have not seen him, yet you believe in him. This is the way we are now. We believe in his first coming, but as Christians, as faithful Christians, we believe in his second coming, do we not? And as we believe in his second coming, we prepare ourselves to meet him face to face. Because when we see him, we shall see him just as he is. We are hastening the coming of the day of God. We are doing this by living a holy life. We're doing this by being ready. We're not the kinds of people who are out late at night, as Jesus said, and getting drunk at night. We're not the kind of people who are not protecting our house for the thief that will come in the night. We're not that kind of people. We are a prepared people. We're not like the five virgins who are waiting for the wedding to start, but they didn't have enough oil in their lamps. And then when the uh, groom came in the middle of the night, they didn't have enough lamp, uh, oil in their lamps and they couldn't go into the wedding because they were busy having to go to the store to get more and then come back to the wedding. And then the, the master said, nope, you can't come in. It's already closed. The wedding has started. So you see, this is the way the world behaves. They don't prepare themselves because they don't see things. But in our case, we do prepare ourselves. We heed the warnings of things not seen. Then, verse 7, it says, In reverence, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. In reverence. In reverence. In in uh, piety or in godliness, in godly fear. That's the meaning of this term in reverence. Here too, we see what precedes righteous actions. We see what precedes obedience. We saw in verse seven so, so far that by faith, we first have faith, then we hear a warning about things not seen and we believe it and we do it. But also it says, we have to have fear or reverence, this kind of godly fear. We need to have that as a precursor, as an assumed aspect of our faith in order for us to obey. After all, who heeds warnings unless he actually believes that there is some trouble or fear that is aroused in his mind about what has not yet happened, right? 
So in this way too, in reverence or reverential fear, he prepared the ark. He prepared the ark. Now think about this. We read in Genesis chapter 6 that it was 120 years from the time that God announced that there would be a flood to the time of the flood. God gave Noah ample time to prepare that huge vessel for himself, his family, and the animals, and all the, the food supply, right, for over a year. He gave the, him 120 years. We don't know if he took the whole time and what, what actually happened. God certainly gave him the, 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 the plan of the, the ark. He gave him the blueprint of what to make and how to make it. He gave all that. We don't know how long it took for him to amass all the materials, to do all the work. Presumably, he did the work by himself and with perhaps with his sons. But there weren't very many people who are going to help him. And everybody else, while, they, while he's preparing this ark over 120 years, what do you think is going on in their mind? Noah, you are a wild man. You're a crazy man. You're telling us the whole world's going to be destroyed? It doesn't it say in Matthew 24, 37 to 40, that in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, everybody was living life as usual, and they would be looking at Noah and thinking he was a wild man. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's insane. He's beside himself. They must have been thinking that and saying that to him. Which means in a 120 year period, at least that much, the persecution or the temptation for Noah was intense. It, it was intense that he could have fallen away in that he could have said, it's not worth it. All these people all these people are laughing at me. All these people have disowned me now. Now I don't have any more friends. He could have been saying that, thinking that, and then abandoned the whole project of the ark. But no, he didn't. He pressed on. He believed what God said because he had the fear of God in him. He had the fear of God. That's the purpose of the warnings. The, the warnings of the Bible are intended to bring up, to quicken the fear of God within us. We must fear God. Fear God, not men. And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. We must fear God and do what God says. And notice too, it is for the salvation of his household. Salvation or deliverance. We do know that he hoped for and prayed for the salvation of his household. They all needed salvation. We do know that. But in terms of actual salvation, we know at least one son was an unbeliever. His youngest son named Ham was an unbeliever. And after the flood, Noah pronounced a curse on that young son, Ham, at the end of Genesis chapter 9, 9, 24 to 27 that curse occurred on his youngest son. But observe here, he did so because as a righteous man, as a righteous husband, as a righteous father, he was concerned for his own flesh and blood. He was concerned for his own family, his own three sons and their wives. He was concerned for them. He knew what he needed to do that would be for their spiritual benefit. 
He was not a man who was passive. He was not a man who was inactive. He was not a man who was weak. He was a man who was resolved to do what was right and good for himself, for his wife, and for his children and his daughters-in-law. He was doing that which was right and good for them, for their benefit, which reminds us too. Should we not be doing that? Speaking most here for the men and for the women among us, pray for your men that they might be like this. And we men, we need to be like this. We need to read the scriptures. We need to believe the scriptures. We need to proclaim the scriptures and the gospel of Christ to other people. We need to do so and teach and pray for our wives. We need to be doing this for our children. We need to be encouraging others to do this. Isn't the salvation of our own family a priority for us? If, if it is a priority, then let's talk about it. Let's read the scriptures together. Let's help one another, pray for one another, deal with the problems of life we face every day. Let's do that together, as Noah did. Further, it teaches us in verse 7 that he condemned the world by doing this. His own beliefs, his own behavior, and probably here, the main thing in view is that his behavior itself was such a, a behavior of, of righteousness, conduct of righteousness, that there was a contrast between his righteous behavior and their wicked behavior, which deserved condemnation. It deserved condemnation. We do know he was a preacher of righteousness, and he likely proclaimed the judgment to come and the condemnation to come for those who refused to repent. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, tells us this very thing. And did not spare the ancient world. God did not spare the ancient worlds, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The, the apostle Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, which means he opened his mouth and he preached the true gospel to people. Yes, he did that. He was a preacher of righteousness, but also he acted in righteousness. He didn't just preach it, he practiced it. He just didn't lip it, he, he lived it. He did what was right and good in the sight of the Lord. And when he did so, it brought condemnation on the people. Because then the people could not say, well, you never told me. Well, you never gave me an example. People can't say that. You never told me or you never gave me an example. You never led me in the way I should go. No, that's what he did. And when he did that, and they did not do that, what's the result? Condemnation. This is what awaits those who refuse repentance. Whoever refuses repentance, only condemnation awaits. Only condemnation. This is what he's been saying again and again. Hebrews 10, 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is what Noah preached. When he preached it and people did not embrace it by faith, this is the only thing that awaits. The wrath of God, the terror of God, that's all. And Noah lived up to it. And finally, he says in verse 7, that Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. The righteousness which is according to faith. Reminding us that Noah was a man of faith, even though explicitly there's no single verse in the Old Testament that says he had faith in Christ. Here he's telling us, in case we misunderstand, Noah was not good from birth. He was corrupt from birth. Noah was not a good man throughout his life before his conversion, good in the sense that he did not need salvation in Christ. No, he was a wicked man. He was unconverted. But at a point in his life, a change occurred. Conversion occurred. He repented of his sins. He believed in Christ as his Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, from that conversion on, he practiced righteousness. He had the righteousness of Christ reckoned to him, and then he practiced that righteousness of Christ. The commandments that he broke before his conversion, now he knows that he's guilty, and now he seeks to overcome sin by the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, by living righteously, by seeking God's wisdom, by the word of righteousness. This is the way he lived. He had this righteousness by faith. He was reckoned righteous, and he lived that way. Let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this, this example of Noah. We pray that we will be faithful to you, that we will have true faith, that we'll have repentance, we'll have obedience in our life. May we heed whatever warnings you present in your word, and may we be faithful to obey you, faithful to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of true righteousness, not being saved by works, but by faith in Christ. And grant, Lord, answers to our prayers. We do want to be uh, greater in faith, greater in godliness, and we do also want our family, our friends, and our co-workers, we want them all. We want people, even strangers, uh, that we don't know, that we encounter. We want people to come to Christ. Answer our prayers and help us, Lord, to act in such a way that it also benefits households, that it benefits the people that we encounter. May the word spread. May your Holy Spirit work in us and use us as vessels for salvation. In Christ's name, amen.